Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for this opportunity to come before you and look at your word and help you to guide and lead us as we study. Show us what you want us to see, and we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Isaiah chapter 50. This is a very interesting chapter. It starts out with God talking to Israel. It ends with God talking to Israel, and it throws in Jesus talking in between uh, before, he, before he became before he came into physical existence, but it's Jesus talking. And it's very clearly Jesus talking. This isn't one of those where we think it's Jesus. It is no other person could be on it. So Isaiah 50, verse 1. Thus saith the Lord, where is the bill of your mother's divorce? Whom have I, whom have I, have I put away? Or which of your, my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, before, for your iniquities you have sold yourselves, and for your transgressions is your mother put away. Wherefore, when I came, was there no man? When I called, there was none to answer. Is my hand shortened at all, that it cannot redeem? Or have I the, no power to deliver? Behold, at my rebuke I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a wilderness, and the fish stink, because there is no water and die for thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness, and I make sackcloth their covering. That's the end of the first paragraph. And this is God talking to Israel. So his first question he asks is, where is the bill of divorcement I gave your mom? <laughs> In other words, I have not divorced you, Israel. He says, show it to me. Where, where is the bill of divorcement, the legal document? All right, he says, where's the legal document? Where's, where's the document that I gave you when I divorced you, Israel? Because they had basically said, you know, God has forsaken us, God has left us, God doesn't care about us. And not only that, they're going after other gods, they're committing fornication and adultery to other gods, and God says, you know, that you're, you're playing the whore, Israel. You're, you've left me, but even though you've done that, I have not given you a legal document of divorcement. You're, you're running around, but I have not gotten rid of you. So it's kind of an interesting way that God's talking to them. You know, show, the, show it to me. Where, where's, where's the divorce? And then he goes on to say, uh, and whom have I put away? At this point, they had not gone into captivity. God has told them they're going to go into captivity. They keep going. You know, there's going to punish them. But at this point, he hasn't even put them away. They had been misbehaving for 400 years, <laughs> following other gods and, and not, not, not pursuing after God, not obeying God. And God says, okay, I haven't divorced you. I haven't put you away yet. And then I love this one. Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? All right, which is kind of interesting because God has no creditors. God owes nobody, but basically saying, you know, uh, okay, you're serving these other gods. When did I sell you? When did I sell you? Because this is in a time when if you got into debt, you were sold, you or you, you could sell your family, you could sell your possessions into servitude. And basically God's saying, okay, uh, do I have some creditors that I sold you to that I'm not aware of? Okay, he's going to them. Which, which creditor did I sell you to? It is very tongue-in-cheek. Now, God is, you know, the point here is that God is making almost a joke. I have not given you a divorce. I have not kicked you out of, the, out of home. You know, and by the way, you know, you're serving these other gods. Which one did I sell you to? 
You know, which one of those are my which one of those are my debtors that I sold you to, that you were out there serving them? Uh, and then he goes, you you have actually sold yourselves because of your iniquities. The wages of sin is death. And he says, you have sold yourself. I didn't sell you to anybody, but you have put yourself into bondage. And that's what he's saying here. You have done it. You have done this. You have, your transgressions have put your mother away. You, you have been kicked out of your own homes. You've been, you know, so he says, I haven't done all this. You have done this. Our sin separates us from God, but it's our sin. It's not God saying, you know, I'm pushing you away, but sin itself puts us away from God. And because he is righteous and holy, he allows it to happen. But he's saying, I'm not the one that's doing this. I didn't divorce you. I didn't, I didn't kick you out. I, I have not sold you into slavery. You did it yourself. And this goes all the way back to Adam and Eve because Adam and Eve were created to rule this world as the supreme rulers of this world. And when they sinned, they gave that right away and sold themselves into servitude of Satan. And unfortunately, everybody born after them. <laughs> all right, Because we have this in nature, we sin, we, we are born into that servitude and we earn it, and God's saying, that is not what I gave you. I didn't divorce you. I didn't kick you out. I didn't cause all this. You did it. And it's a very interesting point of view that we have, is because so many times, we've talked about this various times, people will ask, well, a loving God would never send anybody to hell. No, he doesn't send anybody to hell. He gives them what they asked for. And says, well, you did it. You, I'm not the one that's, I didn't divorce you. I didn't kick you out. I didn't get rid of you. You did it through your sin. And this is why it's very important for us to always keep in mind that God eventually will give people what they ask for. And that's going to be hell or heaven. If they ask the right way and ask Jesus Christ, they can go to heaven. If they, otherwise, they're going to get what, what they deserve and what they asked for, and that's going to be hell because they chose it. Their consequence. And we see these, it's kind of funny when we see these kind of things all the way back in the Old Testament. We go, well, God never did these things. Well, he's always done it. He's never changed his mind. This is why it's fun to talk to somebody and they're going, well, you Christians, you don't believe in the God of the Old Testament. I'm going, I do. I don't know about the rest of them, but I do. You know, God has always been the same. You know, I love it when he came into the Garden of Eden after Adam and Eve had sinned and goes, Adam, where are you? Oh, well, he knew darn where, where Adam was. But what was he doing? He was giving Adam the chance to confess. God, I have, I have blown it. I ate that fruit that you told me not to eat. Please forgive me. He'd still gotten kicked out of the garden, but you know, maybe the consequences wouldn't have been so bad. Right? Instead, he's hiding. You know, uh, I'm afraid. <laughs> I'm afraid. I'm naked. I can't come out and see you. Uh, who told you? You know, you know the, whole, the whole process where he, he blames God and, and Eve at the same time, and Eve blames, blames the serpent. The serpent didn't, didn't get to talk to him, you know, blame anybody. He was just cursed. Because <laughs> uh, he's a liar of all liars. He would have blamed everybody. <laughs> so God didn't even give him a chance to speak. He didn't give chance, Satan a chance to speak. But he's saying you got what you deserve. And then verse 2, wherefore when I came, was there no man? When I called, there was no one to answer me. I really do see Adam and Eve in, this, in that statement. 
I came, no one was there to answer me. Now, I know that most people see this being Israel. I came and called Israel, no one answered me. But I think he's saying, you have, you have sold yourself. I think, really believe he's talking about Adam and Eve there, and he's coming. I came and talked to them, and nobody was there. Nobody answered me. Now, I checked a couple commentaries because this is the first thing I thought when I saw this, and no commentary says anything about Adam and Eve, which means I'm way off base, or it doesn't matter that, because they didn't understand what God said. <laughs> and I'm not going to take a stance on that one. I saw Adam and Eve the moment I read these two verses. All right. Um, there was no one to answer. And then this interesting question again. He asked another set of questions. Is my hand shortened at all? Obviously the answer is no. But even, even if we go back to Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve were hiding. God is not able to forgive. God is not able to redeem. He won't forgive us. We are so, we are so wicked. And in their case, they were the first, first ones, humans, to sin. They were not the first ones to sin because... Satan had already sinned before that. They're the first humans to have sinned, so they're still not even the first. Satan was that one. He's the first one. And so he says, is my arm short that I cannot redeem, that I cannot restore? <laughs> but he says, Adam and Eve's attitude was that they didn't trust God to be able to redeem them. How many times in our own lives do we not trust God to redeem us? God, I just really messed up. I don't know if I can trust you because I, I have messed up so bad, I don't even think you can forgive me, God. Probably nobody sitting in this room is in there, but you know, I've talked to lots of people that believe that. And there's times when we act it. We may not say it, but we act like it. God, I am really so sinful. There's no way I'm coming before you because I just don't know how you could ever forgive this. We've got to be very careful of that because that's what God's saying. Is my arm so short I cannot redeem you? And again, I think he's talking about Adam and Eve at this point. Because I really truly believe if Adam and Eve had repented completely, God would have redeemed them on the spot. They probably would have still lost, lost the Garden of Eden, but there may have been some great benefit in it. Well, and then he says, or I, have I no power to deliver? <laughs> okay, I, I can't redeem you and there's no way I can deliver you? You know, and these are things that we need to keep in mind. We probably would never tell God, you can't redeem or you can't deliver, but oftentimes we act like we think he can't or we act, that something is so, act like something is so far that God can't redeem, God can't rescue. Uh, you know, or, and this really was, if I lost the power to deliver, can I rescue you? And how many times do we try to do everything we can in our strength to get ourselves delivered from a problem, and then we finally decide, well, I might as well give up. I can't do it. I'll go to God. All right, God, now that I've messed up, and I've screwed up even worse by trying to make it better, and I've made it really bad, <laughs> now, God, I'm coming to you. When I, when I think about that term, I, I remember the service station uh, uh, mechanic who had to sign up. Uh, fee for something or other, so much money. Fee for fixing your, your, your trying to fix the problem <laughs> was like three times as much money. You know? uh, you know, and how many times do we do that to God? God, I'm going to fix my problems. I can't fix it. I sinned. I can't fix it, but I'm going to go ahead and fix my problem, God. And after I really make a mess out of everything, which was already a bad mess, and I really make it a bad mess, I go over to God, you know, I think I need your help. 
And you know the graciousness of God is that he helps us. Even after we've really made a mess, mess out of it, of course, no matter how bad we make it a mess, in God's sight, it's not any worse than it was to begin with. And it's kind of like when a parent steps in to help their kids who have really made a mess, don't know what to do with it, and we just look down and you know, pick up two or three things and, <laughs> and everything's taken care of because we see it from a different perspective than they see it. God sees our mess totally different than we do. And he says, I can fix this. I'm, I'm perfectly capable of fixing this. Just let me in. And we need to be able to get to the place where we just say, God, I want to just surrender and do it quicker. You know, something I've been learning over the years, I'm not as, as slow and stubborn and mule-headed as I used to be. And I don't usually go six years like I have in the past trying to fix something. You know, getting to the where it's much faster. I still wish it could be instantaneous, but I'm still not that good yet. But I don't take, I don't take months and years usually to, to turn things over to God. And God is saying, just, just give, me, you know, give it to me. And then just, to, just in case that wasn't enough, he says, at my rebuke, I dry up the sea. All right? What's he reminding the Jewish people about? The Red Sea. Now, I just rebuked and the whole, sea, the whole sea dries up. And he goes, I can, I can make the rivers of the wilderness to be nothing so he can remove the water. And to, to really make his point, he says, the fish stink because they're dying. Most likely, yeah, the fish died in Egypt. Not because the water was taken away, but... But he ruined the water. They could, not, they could not live in the water, so they died. But he's making a very big point here. You know, I could get rid of the water. The fish will suffer. They, they will stink. They will, they, will, they will suffocate, die of thirst. So God says, I'm powerful enough. I can, I can get rid of the sea. I can get rid of the waters. What, what is it that you want me to do? Now, most of us can't get rid of a sea. I don't, I don't even know if we can engineer getting rid of a sea. Uh, we, can, we can change the course of a river. We can block up a river. We can dry up the, the downstream portion of a river to a degree. Because when we block it, it creates a lake. But eventually, we still have to let some of that water through because other, otherwise, it'll go off the, over the dam anyway. So we can't even totally get rid of the river. We can slow it down. We can make it smaller. We can make it into a, just a small inlet, you know, small inlet, but we can't totally get rid of it. You know, technically, I guess we could. We could pump the water someplace else, but, but some, yeah, until the thunderstorm comes and overflows it. Uh, but God's saying, I can get rid of it completely. Now, we've got to understand, when the Jewish people used the word sea, they were thinking of trials and tribulations. They hated the sea. The sea was bad news to them. They were never seafarers. Uh, Solomon goes to sea, but he has to hire other countries <laughs> to build the boat. And then once he builds the boat, he has to hire sailors from other countries <laughs> because nobody in Israel knew how to sail that well. I mean, they could do small, you know, on the Lake of Galilee, on, a, on a, you know, the Galilean lakes and stuff. They could do small pleasure cruises, but to go to sea was a big deal. And they always considered the sea trouble. Large waves and, and tempests and... The sea always represents trouble in their poetry. And so here he's going, God, God says, I can get rid of the sea. Figuratively means he can get rid of the problems. He can get rid of the trials. And this is the good news for us. God wants to bring us through our trials and tribulations. 
all right, if we will trust on him. Because he wants to be the one that gets the credit for it. He doesn't want us to get the credit for us, which means he'll usually let us suffer until we ask. And then he says, okay, let me step in and show you how easy this is. He goes, and Jesus slept in the middle of a sea that's capsizing the boat. You know, and you know, it's amazing to me, he, he tell, gets up and call, you know, tells the disciples, oh, you of little faith. But you have to realize, who's he talking to here? Half of his disciples were fishermen. They knew that the boat was sinking. It was not a question in their mind that that boat was, was doomed. And Jesus tells them, well, I told you we're going to the other side, and you, you have no faith that we're going there, so, you know, storm, be, be quiet. And stops the storm. So, but I, I've always thought it was strange, you know, these guys were guys that knew boats. If they're worried that the boat is going down, that boat was going down. It, by, by sight, that boat was going down. Otherwise, they wouldn't have been worried. These guys, these guys are the fishermen. Okay, yeah, it's a bad storm, but we'll make it to the other side. They know boats. You know, and Jesus said, oh, you don't have a faith? I said we were going to the other side. Yeah, they didn't know Jesus, didn't know his power, and didn't at that point recognize his power to say, we're going to go over no matter what this boat does, we're going to the other side. <laughs> All right. But, you know, we do the same thing so often. We get a promise from God. God tells us to do something or challenges us to do something. We're absolutely sure there was God telling us to do it. And the first storm that comes along... You know, and we're, we're, struggling, we're struggling with, oh, am I doing the right thing? And usually it will happen in something like tithes. God says, I want you to start giving tithes. And as soon as you start giving that first tithe, or you're ready to start that first tithe, some unexpected bill comes in place. Uh, well, you know, God can't do it now. This, this bill has to be paid. You know, before it was extra money, and I knew I could do it. Now I've got to pay a bill. Okay, did God tell you to do it or not? If he really put it on your heart to do it, you do it. And it's very important for us to be able to say, God, you said to do this. I'm going to follow through no matter what the storms and trials say. And usually those storms and trials make us double, double take. God, did you, really, did you really want me to do this? Did, you, did I really hear your voice? We were absolutely sure before the storms came. And then the storms come and it's like, oh, well, I'm not so sure anymore. This is what's coming on in here. The seas. He says, I dry up the sea. You know, one, one blow and I'll dry up the sea. And then it says, just in, if that wasn't enough for his power, in verse 3 it says, I clothe the heavens with blackness and I make sackcloth their vesture. Gloom. You know, he says, I can take and I can do what I want. I can make the heavens black and gloomy and I can make sackcloth, itchy, itchy garment, their garment, their garment. And so he's saying, I have power, just trust. My arm is not short, my, my strength is not gone. I don't owe anybody, so I didn't sell you to anybody. I didn't give you a divorce. Pay attention to me. And this is the backdrop as we now get ready to go into verse 4. Yes. Well, shortened, the idea of the shortened is all of a sudden I can't reach far enough to help you, is what he's saying. Okay, have you, have you gone so far away that I can't reach you, or is, am I not stretching out my hand to be able to reach you? Is what, okay, is my strength shortened? Am I no longer able to reach out and touch you? 
Uh, you, you know, and again, if we go back to the idea that I think he's talking about Adam and Eve, they're hiding, pretending that they don't, that God can't find them. So I think he's talking to them, but, you know, and we do that oftentimes with God. God, I've gone so far away that you can't even, you can't even rescue me. You, you, you're lacking the strength. You, you don't, you can't even reach me. I've gone so, so deep. And we hear from the lost, you know, I, well, if you knew what I did, God, you'd know that God can't forgive me. No. God's hand is not short. He, you are not out of his reach. Matter of fact, we know that the scriptures tell us he can reach all the way to hell. You know, in the Psalms it says, if I descend into hell, you are there. If I hide in the darkness, you are there. You know, basically, God is everywhere. Now, they won't feel his comfort in hell, but God is still in hell. In hell, when they're in hell, they're not totally separated from him. They're just separated from his love and his kindness and his mercy, and there will be no comfort but he says, God, if you want to hide in hell, I'll be there with you there too. Because he's there. You know, he, he is everywhere. He's omniscient and omnipresent. Like that one verse said, even in the depth of the sea, he's there. Yeah, which is the depth of all the troubles that we have. God is there. So it's a very powerful statement. You know, God said, my, hand, I didn't, my hand's not so short I can't reach you. You know, I reach out to you. Well, redeemed, mine says redeemed, but redeemed is actually ransom or rescue. Yeah. We're all, I think we all got King James now, so they all say redeem. Another other synonyms for redeem is to, to rescue or ransom. And again, as I see this and I'm reading it, I do see Adam and Eve, and, he's ta- and I really believe he started talking with Adam and Eve, which then translates to everybody thereafter because they, they are the first one. But they were the first one to say, God, I'm hiding. I'm hiding. I know you're everywhere, but I'm hiding. Uh, God, we have, we have committed such a sin, we don't think you can rescue us. And he's going, who can't I ransom? <laughs> you know, so it's a very powerful picture and everybody since Adam and Eve has done the same thing. Hiding from God. You know, I'm out of your reach, God. I'm beyond your reach. Your arm is too short. And God's asking these questions. When did that happen? When did my arm get short? You know, when, did, when did I not be able to redeem? And so there's a very powerful statement. And now we're going to go into his redemption. Verse 4. The Lord God hath given me the tongue of the learned that I should know how to speak a word in season to him that is weary. He wakens morning by morning and wakens my ear to hear as the learned. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious, neither turned away back. I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. For the Lord God will help me Therefore, I will not be confounded. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint. And I know that I shall not be ashamed. He is near that justifies me. And who will contend with me? Let, him stand, let us stand together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near me. Behold, the Lord God will help me. Who is he that, have, that shall condemn me? Lo, they shall wax old as a garment, and the moth shall eat them. Who is among you that fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant, that he walks in darkness, that walks in darkness, that has no light? Let him trust in the name of the Lord, the stay and stay upon his God. So we're having the first mention of Jesus in through this. 
So verse 4 starts, The Lord God hath given me the tongue of the learned, that I should know how to speak a word in season to him that is weary. Jesus knew what to say, when to say it, how to say it. He is the greatest teacher. When we read the Gospels, he says things that people still are amazed at, even though they've read it so many times. And people will point to certain things and go, well, this other great leader said it, and this other great religious leader, but none of them have said anything the way Jesus said. Jesus said, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Most of the religious leaders will say, do unto others as they have done unto you. You know, and which is a big difference. God is saying, we're to treat others the way we want to be treated. And the rest of the leaders, treat them the way they are treating you. In other words, if they're mean to you, you be mean back to them. Not, do I want them to be nice? Or how would I like to be treated, like Jesus said? You know, and Jesus had the tongue of the learned. At age 12, he was in the temple talking with the leaders. And what does it say? They were astonished at his knowledge. Okay, where'd this 12-year-old boy learn all this stuff that's amazing us doctors of the Bible that had been studying it all their lives, and they're looking at a 12-year-old who has not been taught, you know, to the best of their knowledge, but God had given him the tongue of the learned. What's really great for us, because the Holy Spirit dwells in us, have you ever been in a place where you're witnessing to somebody and you're just saying things that you don't have a clue where they're coming from? Because God has put the tongue of the learned in your mouth because he indwells us. It's happened to me. When, when I get to talk with somebody and something just comes out so perfect, it's like, okay, that was not me. <laughs> I am not that eloquent. I am not that rational. And something comes out just perfect. And you're going... God, you did it. You filled my mouth. Jesus' tongue was filled from the youngest age, and he spoke correctly. He did what it, he did what it, and it says, I know how to speak a word in season to him that is weary. Weary. In season, just the right time. To the person who is weary, tired, broken. You know, God oftentimes will give us the same thing where we have just the right word at the right time, to minister to somebody. Have you ever had a Christian come along to you yourself when you're just in a really bad place and they say just the right things that you needed to hear and you leave so encouraged? I hope so. <laughs> I hope it happens often. I know sometimes it doesn't, but you know, but this is the way Jesus comes in. He speaks just the right words. He arranges the right words to come into our, into our hearing when we're weary. And he probably uses us more than we're aware of to minister to other people. Because there's so many things that happen in our lives that I don't even think we're, we're aware of what, what we're doing and what we mean to people. And I can t say one thing that I'm absolutely sure of is sometimes we look up at people and say, well, that person really ministered to me and if it wasn't for them speaking to me that day and the way they did, I would have not made that day. And if you were to talk to them sometime in the future, and you go, wow, I really appreciated what you did and how you did it, their answer is probably going to be, I have no idea what you're talking about. I was just ministering to the best of my ability, and I didn't think it was all that great, but you impact, we can, we can impact people's lives, and there are people that impact our lives that probably have no clue that they've impacted our life. 
until they get to heaven and Jesus says, see right here, you said what I told you and that, look what it did to that person. Right here, you, you just said a couple of words and look what it did. And I think there's going to be great rewards for us just because we are listening to God and speaking for him. And we're just being ourselves. You know, and sometimes that's all it is. I am just living out what I think is you know, important in my life and I'm trying the best I can and other people are being really encouraged by it. And same thing for, you, for other people that I know. And we may not even think we're doing anything special. And when we get to heaven, the guy's going to say, here they are. Well, God, I was, just, I was just doing what you had taught me. Yep, and look at the reward you got because of it. But, but I was struggling that day when I did that. And, and he goes, yep, but that one little point of obedience changed change somebody's whole life from that point on. And there are things, and we all know there are people in our life that have said something that have changed us, that may have changed our direction completely. We were, we were planning to go some other direction, and what they said moved us in a way, and we found out later, you know, as we walked in down that path, we're going, wow, I'm in the right path. This is where I'm supposed to be. That person may not even be aware that they even impacted your life. And they may or may not. You know, a, a message comes through, and they say something. I've been amazed at what people take from some of my messages sometimes when I don't even remember saying what they heard uh, or even talking about what they thought I talked about. <laughs> and I'm going, okay, God, you did something there. I don't know what it was. Uh, you know, and I've had people go, well, you told me to do such and such, and I'm going, when? I don't tell anybody to do anything, so when did I tell you to do anything? <laughs> so, you know, but what is heard sometimes will be totally different. They'll hear, and it'll touch their heart. And the w tongue of the wise that God can give us. And we may not even be aware that we have the tongue of the wise when it happens. We may even think we're being foolish <laughs> when it happens. And it says we know how to speak a word in season. He wakes morning by morning. He wakes my ear to hear as, as the learn. So Jesus got up early in the morning, and we see it throughout the Gospels over and over. He got up early in the morning, found a solitary place, and spent time with the Father. The Father woke him up every morning, he went out and he talked with the Father, and then he went out and ministered. Now, this is important for us to spend time with God. I've always said it's better early in the morning. If you can't do it early in the morning, find some time to do it, but early in the morning before all the problems, all the headaches start is the best. And so we see this, and then it says in verse 5, the Lord God hath opened my ear, I was not rebellious. Neither did I turn back, or turn away back. So this is Jesus. He never disobeyed anything that he was told to do. He's the only human being that has never disobeyed. He was not rebellious. He never turned his back to what God had said. Yeah. All of us would love to have that as our testimony. None of us ever will. Yeah, well, I don't know. People do that all the time. And believe me, I've seen many people who turn their back on what they... Because this is something... That's actually kind of an interesting point because in Romans especially, God says, you are not obeyed my laws, you have not obeyed the government's laws, and you haven't even obeyed your own rules. Because we disobey our own rules all the time. I will never do such and such. And the next thing we know, we're doing just what we said I will not do. We don't even keep our own rules so that when God judges us to go to hell, he'll say, okay, you didn't obey me. 
You didn't obey the government, and you didn't even obey yourself. You said you weren't going to, you made rules for yourself that you didn't, and we're right at the time of year that everybody's already violating their resolutions, that they're going to, that they made promises to do something, and if they lasted this long, they were lucky. Most people have already violated all their New Year's resolutions by this, this point in the year. And we're only 22, 23 days into the year. Most of them have violated their resolutions within the first week. So if they get this far, they're very unusual and they won't make it to the end of the year usually. And this is what he's saying. Jesus, this is Jesus. He has never done anything wrong. Not, even, not while he was walking on this earth, not before he was walking on the earth, and not after he was done walking on the earth. Never done anything wrong, was never rebellious to the Father. And he says, this is who I am. God woke me up every morning, we talked, he told me what I was going to do, that, going to do and I went out and did it. And we already talked about how many times do we say, God, you told me what to do, and then the first storm comes along and we quit. We might get through the first storm and the second storm comes along and we quit. You know, we're going to quit eventually in most cases. Very rare are we going to stay faithful with God and that would take turning everything over to him to be faithful. And this is the place where he says, I have heard as the learned, the discipled. All right? God wants us to be his disciples be trained in what he, how he wants us to live and walk the way he wants us to walk. And that's hard, 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 tough act because everything he teaches us is so contrary to the way the world teaches and the way the flesh wants to be, which is why we must be crucified so that we can even come close to walking the way he wants us to walk. And then we just spend time paying attention to God, loving God, spending time with God. Verse 6, I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked off my hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. Very clearly comes from the Gospels. Jesus was scourged. He was beat. At one point they put a bag over his head and he says, okay, you're a prophet. You know, and they were struck him and said, tell us, who, who, tell us who's hitting you. All right, As they beat him, beat him mercilessly. And then they scourged him. And that scourging we've talked about at various times. They, they literally lifted off chunks of flesh from his body with the scourge. And they spit on him. And we know that that's recorded. All of those are recorded in Matthew 26 through 27, Luke 18, uh, John 19. All of those things are, are the recording of Jesus' death. The one thing we do not have a record of is than plucking his beard out of his face. There's nothing in the gospel about it. It's all from Isaiah. Three places in Isaiah that talked about his beard being removed from his face. Now they said we couldn't recognize him as a man, but the, the pummeling alone would have done that. And the beating and the scourging would have done that. And, you know, and it, it fits. Isaiah said it, so I'm sure it happened. Why none of the gospel writers wrote it down? I have no idea. Because it was prophesied that it would be done, but it was never mentioned in the Gospels or in Paul's writings for all I, that I can remember. I just checked the Gospels <laughs> this last week. Uh, but he was beat. He was uh, scourged. He was spit upon. 
All the rest of them happened. I'm sure that they pulled the beard out of the say, uh, out as well, because that was the greatest insult you could do to somebody from the from the Middle East, is to destroy their beard. Remember in First uh, Samuel chapter 10 when uh, David had sent the men to be representative to the new king. And, they, and his advisor said, they're here to spy out the land. They're not here to honor your dad. They're here to spy out the land. And they cut half the beard off and half their garment off and sent them back. And, they, and you know, David was more upset about the beard being cut than the garments. The garments were replaceable. It would take time for their beards to grow out. And it was a huge insult. And many times you, you would read, and then I swear by, by my beard as they're, as they're reaching their beard, you know, I would rather lose my beard than be, <laughs> be telling you a falsehood is what they're saying. So it was a huge insult. So I, I picture that it did happen. But it, it's, not, it's the only one of these things that we don't have listed in the Gospels as having happened. He was spit on. He was beat. He was, was all these other things. And I have no doubt that they pulled his beard out. Okay, I have no doubt about it, because Isaiah said it was going to happen, and I'm sure it happened. Huh? Uh, Matthew 26, uh, chapter 26 and 27, Luke, uh, Luke 18, and John 19 are all about the crucifixion of Jesus. And if anybody can find a beard being pulled out, let me know, because I have not, and I've actually heard pastors that have said it hadn't happened, it didn't, wasn't recorded. Now, I've heard other pastors swear that it's recorded. And I'm going, well, you're reading a different Bible than I am. I haven't been able to find it. All right? I'm not saying it didn't happen. I'm absolutely sure that it happened because it was prophesied. And why it wasn't mentioned, I don't know. One of those things were to take on faith. So he says, I gave, and I love this, I gave my back to be beat. Jesus, when standing before Pilate said, you would, and Pilate says, I had the power to, to release or kill you. And he says, you would have no power unless it was given to you. And it was Jesus who gave him that power. Jesus could have at any time called the angels of heaven and said, uh, destroy these guys. They're not worth it. And I really have this picture of all the angels in heaven just waiting at, at the throne of heaven, looking at the father and saying, how, how are you letting this happen? It's our job to protect him. You're, you're, not letting us do, you're not letting us do your job, our job. Why are you keeping us back? You know, are you waiting for just the right point to make, you know, to make a dramatic entry? What's going on? You can, I can almost picture this. They're watching Jesus be beat by men. The God of the universe being beat by men. And the angels are probably standing back there. Just, just one of us could take them all out. You know, Father, just one of us could go down there and, and rescue this and stop this whole thing. Because I don't think they understood what was going on completely either. This was a decision that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit had made before the foundation of the world that they were going to rescue men. And I don't think they told everybody, anybody directly what was going to happen. Yes, we see all through here that he's going to die, he's going to be beat. But I don't think anybody ever put it all together we do by hindsight. We look at this and say, wow, you know, who's just going to get beat? Who, who's getting spit on? We now look at it and say, we know, we know who it was. See, like, see, that's what confuses me a lot because 
But once you see it, it opens up and you go, you can't be anybody else. Who, who is perfect? Who is righteous? You know, that's never rebelled. So. It's like, like in the story find, find your or prophecies fulfilled, but that's the only one that has a little star by it. It's the one about the, the cheeks and the hair and the shit. Yeah, because everything except for the cheek had been. Yeah, but I mean, like the ones about him being able to, I guess those weren't prophecies, though. Which ones? Uh, They're not recognizing it, but I do. I do because at 12 years old, he was speaking with the tongue of the wise. Again, whenever we get to this point of what is prophecy, what is not prophecy, everybody's going to see it totally different in many cases. There's certain ones that we know. Okay, yeah, he got beat. There's very clear, very clear. Uh, the one above it, that he spoke with the tongue of the wise, most people may not recognize that as a prophecy because they're not really thinking about him at 12 years old. Or that he spoke perfectly every time he spoke. And he's called the greatest teacher. Sounds like the tongue of the wise to me that it was given the learning of, of the, the wise. So I see it as a, as a fulfilled prophecy. Uh, there's many places where I see things that other people don't see and other people see things that I don't see. And, that's, and I'll find out in heaven whether I was right. <laughs> you know, uh, I just see this very clearly. Jesus, and I saw the first part very clearly, Adam and Eve. The first Adam failed. The last Adam, as, as Paul says in his writing, fulfilled everything. So I see a first and last Adam in this, in this section. You know, here's, here's the first Adam. I'm just going to spend a couple verses on him. He failed. Yeah. All right, now let's go to the second Adam, who's going to do the redeeming. Uh, verse 7 goes, For the Lord God will help me Therefore, I will not be confounded. Therefore, I have set my face like flint. I know that I shall not be ashamed. What a statement on this. He says, I set my face like flint. I'm going to go through with what I have to go through. Jesus, all through the New Testament said, kept telling the disciples over and over and over again, I'm going to the cross, I'm going to die, and then I'm going to resurrect. Okay, I'm going, I'm going to the cross, I'm going to die, I'm going to resurrect. They never understood, they never conceived of it. And he went and he says, I shall, he says, for the Lord God will help me or deliver me, rescue me. Then we have the word therefore. Because God will help me, I will not be confounded or ashamed. Okay, there's another way we could look at that, or even humiliated. Now, it's kind of an interesting statement because the death on the cross was the greatest humiliation that the physical body could go through. It was so horrific that no Roman citizen was allowed to be crucified because it was beneath the citizenship. It was only barbarians and, and all those that they conquered that were able to go through the cross because it was that shameful. You were hung on a cross naked in front of the population and you were left there to die. Now not everybody was nailed to the cross. Very few people ever went through what Jesus did. Scourged almost to death before you were put on a cross and nailed on the cross besides that. Most people, most people were just tied to the cross and left there for, for a week or so to die. 
and they got so tired that they couldn't support their body and finally died of suffocation. Jesus got the worst of the worst, beat to within an inch of his life, then put on a cross, and not just tied to the cross, nailed to the cross. He got the worst possible things, and he says, I'm not going to be ashamed in any of that. What a statement on that. Why? Because he says, God, you're my help. And then he goes on and says, therefore I shall not be confounded. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be ashamed. All right? God, you're my helper. Because you're my helper, I will not be confounded or ashamed. Therefore, I am set my face like a flint to do what you asked me to do. This is a great chain of thought for us to keep in mind. God, you're my helper. You've said you this is what you're going to do, and because you said you're my helper and you're gonna and you said you're gonna be do what you're gonna do, I will do what you've asked me to do because you are my helper. Okay? It's kind of a very long way. God, you said you're my helper, you're gonna do it, you told me to do it, I am going to do it. And this is what Jesus said. I am going to do it because we've already discussed this. You're my helper, you're gonna give me the strength, and I'm going to do it. And Huh? Yeah. God, you're my strength. You're my protector. I'm going to do what you've asked me to do. And if you deliver me, thank you. If you don't, I'll meet you really, really soon. <laughs> above the shame and the pain. Yeah. Okay. I see what you're saying. Above the shame and the pain. Because everything, what happened to a lot of those martyrs was designed to bring shame. You know, marching them through towns naked on their way to their death. You know, to try to, because they under, you know, and that wasn't such a big deal. There were certain, they would never have cared whether a Greek or, or, or a barbarian walked through the world naked. They were naked half the time anyway. But for a Christian, you know, to be marched through the town naked, that was a real blow to them, and it was designed to make them feel ashamed, and God would give them, I, you're, you're doing it for me. You're doing it for me. And be able to hold their head held high, and go through with, the, with their punishment. Because they go, God, you're, you're, you're my protector. I didn't choose this. I'm not doing this by my own choosing. You're, it's happening to me. And this is what Jesus said. Now, Jesus ultimately knew he was going to be resurrected. And I, and I noticed, heard the question sometime the other day, somebody said, well, was it, how bad was Jesus' sacrifice when he knew that he was going to be resurrected three days later? He still went through a lot of pain. Still went through a lot of pain and, you know, getting there. But I understood the question. You know, it's almost like, well, if you knew that you weren't going to stay dead, was it really that big a deal to die? You know, well, I don't know. How much pain did you go through to get there? You know, how much embarrassment did you have to go through to get there? Uh, so yes, I think it, would, it still was a sacrifice. And it was a painful sacrifice. And then he said after that, he goes, I, I shall not be ashamed. I set my face like flint. I shall not be ashamed. He is near that justifies me. God is always near, and he's the one that justifies. And Jesus, actually at this point, when he went to the cross, he needed to be justified because he had been made sin. He had to go through the same thing we did after he became sin. He had to be justified, declared perfect. Because he had taken all the sin of the world upon him. He experienced full sin and the punishment of sin. 
The wages of sin is death. I am absolutely convinced that Jesus could not have died until he became sin because that is the wages of sin. All the pain he went through, he could not have died until all the sin was put upon him and he became sin. Can you imagine what that means? Going through that scourging, going through the hanging on the cross and not being able to die? You know, until he became sin? And then he deserved to die? Because it said, as soon as he became sin, for only three hours left before he died. Became sin, darkness covered the earth, and he died. <laughs> and he suffered for a period of time while he was sin. And he says, he, he that justifies me is near. Who will contend with me? Only Jesus can really say that one. Who can contend with me? Satan thinks he can contend with God. But he has to go to God to ask for permission to even do anything to us. And he's going to contend with God? He thought he had a victory over Jesus in the flesh. And he failed. He could not get Jesus to bow. And he then thought he had killed it. And he says, let us stand together. Who is my adversary? Let him be, come near to me. I can almost picture Jesus saying this to Satan. You know, all right, Satan, here I am. You, you've won, I'm dead. Now what are you going to do? <laughs> Come on and contend with me now. I, I still have power. <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm dead for three days. Here you go. Here's your, here's your really big chance. <laughs> and it says, who can come near me? Behold, the Lord God will help me or rescue me again. <laughs> All right? So Jesus now is in a place where he needs to be rescued. Because he's dead. And he's going to have to be resurrected. And he's going to be resurrected. And who is he that condemns me? Lo, they all shall be wax old as a garment, and the moss shall eat them up. They're going to die. They're going to be judged. They're not, they're not going to be a big deal. At the end of the age, they're going to be gone. They're going to be cast into the lake of fire forever where they're not going to have anything to do. They will be in the eternal death, being rotted away in agony. And, they, and Satan thought that he was God's adversary, thought that he could oppose God. Now, and I don't want to be too harsh on, God, on Satan because we do the same thing. You know, maybe not us as Christians. You know, we, we usually re, 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 relent at some point. But how many people do we know that are still fighting God, thinking they can win, thinking they can make the rules, thinking they can decide what's right and what's wrong? And that when they, and I've even heard, when I get, when I, you know, if, if, if there is a God and, and this life has been so bad, you just wait till I get to God and tell him how unfair he's been about this life that I've lived. I'm going, uh-huh, you stand before God, you're not going to say much of anything because he's going to show you how you messed up, how you caused your problems, and how you rejected him. You're not going to say a whole lot to him. You know, uh, and I've heard it over and over, you know, and I've heard people, when I get to heaven, you know, even for Christians, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask God why. You know, I think and when you get to heaven, you're going to first off know why, you know, why you went through it. You know, you either caused it or you, or you failed the test. <laughs> One of the two. 
You know, you failed God's test and caused your problems, or you literally caused your problems. One or the other. All right. I hate it when I hear people say that. I'm going, do you really think you're going to talk to God that way? You really don't understand God, do you? You know, I am looking forward to meeting God, and I don't think I'm going to have any questions for him. I'm just going to be so thankful for being there, you know, that it'll be, I'm here. <laughs> I'm here. You gave me enough grace, and I'm here. You know, and, and even at that, he's, gonna, he's already going to have shown us at the Bema seat why we went through things and show us, well, this is where you, this is where you didn't get the reward because you turned the wrong way, but these are the rewards you have. And I really do think he's going to show us the rewards we could have had. These are the places that you turned away, but here, take joy in the rewards you do get because all of us are going to have missed rewards, all of us, because we're not perfect. And we're just going to be joyful that I can get any reward at all. You know, what, what rewards do I have? And, and we're going to see that God has more rewards in us than we really anticipate. I'm absolutely sure that all of us have more rewards than we think. If we've walked with him at all correctly, but there's times when we've ministered to people and we may not have a clue, like I said at the beginning. We have no clue that we ministered, and God's going to say, here, this is, this is what you get. I know you didn't think anything of it. I know you just thought you were doing your your life and your business and you knew, felt that you were being a failure in this, but here's the reward because it really touched this person over here. This person really saw it and grew. You know, these words you said here, they changed that person's life. And we're going to get rewards that we're not even aware of. And then we're going to see those things that we thought maybe we had a reward and God's going to say, no, nope, you didn't have the right attitude here and it really turned this person against me when you said that. And going, oh, ah. <laughs> you know, we're going to get rewards for things we never expected, and they're going to lose rewards that we thought we thought we had, and then there's going to be some that we we did right and we knew we did right because there, there is there are some things we know I, that was right, and I just know that it was right, and you know I can't take you know, I can't take pleasure in it because it wasn't me in, in those, if it's right it wasn't me in the first place, and God says, yep, you you were right that one that one you saw me working through you. Well, that would always be the best reward. Who is among you that fears the Lord, that obeys the voice of his servant? Now we're walking back away from Jesus a little bit. That obeys the voice of his servant, that walks in darkness and has no light. Let him trust in the name of the Lord and stay upon his God. This is very important. Who is it that fears God? Very quickly, you know, very, not, a, not a whole lot, especially in Isaiah's day. He's talking to a small remnant. Who is it that trusts the Lord and obeys his voice that walks in darkness? How often do we feel like we're walking in the middle of darkness? We can't see a light. We're in the middle of the tunnel, and there's a corner at both ends. We can't see either end of it because we're in the middle of a horseshoe tunnel, and we're going, God, this is, this is terrible. Where are you? God puts us in those situations a lot and says, just trust me. Just keep going. Keep moving on. And it says, and has no light, let him trust in the name of the Lord. In the name of the Lord, all the reputation of the Lord. This is our encouragement. When we think everything's going wrong, there's nothing good, 
Uh, God, I've been, I've been in the darkness so long, I don't even know if there's any light anywhere or ever has been any light. And he says, just trust. Trust in the name of the Lord and stay upon him. And this word for stay literally means to lean on for support. God, I have nothing else to do. I'm just, I'm, I'm holding on to you because I have nothing else. If I trust in my own strength, I'm going to sit down and just die in this darkness. But God, I'm going to lean on you and God will carry us through. And then he has this very interesting last verse in this chapter. Behold, all you that kindle a fire, that compass yourself about with sparks, walk in the light of your fire, and in the sparks that you have kindled, this shall you have of my hand, you shall lie down in sorrow. When I looked at this, I had to research this a little bit, and most of the scholars say that in Hebrew, this is saying that you have lit a fire, but you're not taking comfort in it. You're not taking comfort in the light. And what they, have, what they have said, and I'm going to have to give them, because I had trouble with this, this one when I was studying it. What they're saying is you've created, you've gotten into the light, but you're not responding to it. How many times, even in our own lives, do we read God's word and we get convicted and we don't bow to his conviction and we get a little sorrowful because we know, we're, we know what we're supposed to do, but we don't do it? I am surrounded by his light. I'm surrounded by the sparks. I'm surrounded. And I'm going, nope, not going to do it. Now go turn this to the world. The world gets a little bit of God's light. Enough to get convicted. And then reject him. And they lie down in sorrow because they have rejected God. And, you know, maybe even for us before we got saved, we can remember the first time we heard the gospel and didn't, re didn't respond. It made us miserable. You know, well, I am a sinner. I'm headed for hell. I have no hope. Maybe I didn't hear the rest of the gospel. <laughs> you know, all, all somebody told me is you're a sinner and you're going to hell. Didn't tell me how to avoid hell. All I know about the Bible is that they told me I'm going to hell because I'm bad. And then I read it and I find all these verses that tell me I'm bad and God, God doesn't like it. You know, without the whole light and responding to it, we will just bow down in sorrow. And even in our own lives at times, and, and I've been there, you know, when I'm in a bad place and all of a sudden the, the word of God shines into my heart and I'm going, ah, not, not taking it, nope, don't want to hear that today. And it leads more to sorrow than to joy. And this is what they're saying this is. They've, they've kindled their own fire to start with. You have kindled a fire and compass yourselves about with sparks. Now, as you're thinking about that, I was thinking about the roaring fires that you see, especially on TV shows. Got this roaring fire with sparks flying everywhere, and people just standing in the in the mid, you know, right around the edges and in amongst all these sparks. They got this roaring fire. But they're not being consumed by any of the truth. They're not being consumed by the absolute truth. All they're doing is getting burned by the sparks. Getting burned by the sparks and saying, ah, these hurt. I don't want to, I don't want to be anywhere near this stuff. And they draw away from the fire. Uh, and I, I don't know about you, but I remember going camping and, you know, getting on the wrong side of the fire and having the sparks and the smoke all, you know, no matter where I went, you know, and it's like, so eventually you say, I'm going away from the fire, and then you get cold and you have to come back to the fire. And it always seemed like whatever side of the fire I was on, the sparks, the sparks and everything were flying in that direction. That's what this is a picture of. You know, they're getting near the fire. They're getting near the truth. 
but they're getting burned and irritated by the fire and the truth and backing away from it. And that ends up being sorrowful. And this is something we hear so often. The more somebody rejects God and his truth, the more sorrow they have because now they've heard the truth. They can't just be dumb and stupid, you know, I can sin and not have a problem. Now they know that what they're doing is wrong. They just don't know how to stop doing what it is they're doing because they refuse to turn it over to God and ask for his forgiveness. And they end up lying down in complete sorrow. You know, I, have, I thought, I, 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 I see who I am, but I didn't, hear, I didn't hear the good news. I just saw the bad news. I'm a sinner. You know, I'm going to go to hell, but I'm not going to turn over to God and let him be my savior. So we see this, this, this problem that we have here. But and Well, we get convicted, and conviction's good. As long as I turn it back to God and ask for his, strength, his forgiveness and his strength to get through it. But we've all been there, too, where we, had, we get convicted and we're not ready to turn it over to God. Uh, God, no, no way. And then we're miserable. And we stay miserable until we turn it over to him. And hopefully it's just minutes or, or hours. Sometimes it turns into days, weeks, years, decades. You know, because I just won't surrender. And a lot of times the lost are that way. I am not going to surrender. I am, I am a self-made person, a self-made man, and I am not going to surrender to this God who's asking for everything. I'm not going to do it, not going to do it. Even though I'm absolutely sure that he's true, that I'm a sinner and I deserve punishment, I am not going to surrender and do things his way. And ends up being nothing but sorrow. And you can't sleep well, you can't, can't live well, you can't do anything because you know you're wrong. But you're just not ready to give up. And we can do that as a Christian, we can do it as the lost. It's worse as a lost because they're going to hell as well. At least we'll get to go to heaven, maybe in disobedience, but we get to go to heaven. But, uh, you know, but when we're in disobedience to God, he does not let us have an easy life. He says, you're going to be sorrowful. You're going to be convicted. You're going to be pressed until you turn it over. Or if you really want to be that stubborn until I take you home. Uh, and I'm sure there are many Christians that go home much earlier than God wanted to them because they were so stubborn they weren't going to turn their life over completely. And God says, rather than have you ruin my reputation with everybody that you come in contact with, and he sees down the road that you're not going to repent, he takes you home. And I've shared with you, this is why I believe Moses did not go into the promised land because from the time that he struck the rock, every time he talked to the people, he says, it's your fault I'm not going into the promised land. He never admitted it. It was his own anger that judged him. Okay? And he did something really bad. I mean, it was bad. It totally destroyed the picture that God was trying to show. But I really, truly believe that if he had ever repented and said, God, you know what? My, ang my anger, yeah, I got mad at these guys, but it's still my anger that that caused it, but from that point on, it's, you guys are the reason I'm not going into, and he still blamed them, and he never accepted full responsibility for his actions. And I think God said, fine, you don't want to accept responsibility for your actions, I am not letting you go into the promised land now either. And, you know, how many times do we do that kind of stuff with God? God, I'm just not here. I'm here. God, and he knows it was their fault. 
If it wasn't for them making me so mad or, or leading me into this sin, I would have never have done it on my own. And God says, no, we're not going that route. We can't blame others. And God just won't let that happen. So, yeah. But the blaming, the blaming others is not new. It happened all the way back at the very first sin, you know, with Adam and Eve, and we have been doing it ever since. But the point is, at some point, we have to say, God, it's me. The old Sunday school song, you know, it's me, it's me, standing in the need of prayer. You know, not my brother, no my sister, but it's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. We have to get to that place where we recognize it's me. It's, it's tough. Well, it's so easy to blame it on others. God, if I hadn't been raised this way, God, if, I hadn't, if these people hadn't been influencing my life, God, if you just didn't have this group around me, I would have, I would have been the perfect kid. Yeah, huh? Yeah, God said, no, I don't think so. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity we've had to look to you and your word. We ask you to be with us, guide us. Lord, help us to see that you are the mighty one that keeps and cares for us and you are our rescuer, that your arms have not gotten short, you do not have any creditors, and that we, you are the one that can keep us perfectly. In Jesus' name, amen.